Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Last year, Nevson Resources was walking down the red carpet. Well, congratulations on winning Mining Company of the Year Europe. Uh, it feels feels fantastic. It was a little bit like the Academy Awards, but without but without all the glamorous movie stars. You know, it's is the mining sector. But exactly. no, it's really good. The company had a great year this year. That was a result of literally decades of work by you know several generations of employees. That's Scott Treblecock, Chief Development Officer of Nevson Resources at the 2018 Mines and Money Awards. Nevson had cause to celebrate. They just won Mining Company of the Year. The award probably didn't come as a surprise. Nevson, a Vancouver-based company, has been doing well for itself over the last two decades. It's not the biggest miner in Canada, not by a long shot. But in 2018, it was bought for $1.8 billion. Their biggest success started in the late 1990s. Nevson was looking for untapped business opportunities when the company's former vice president, Todd Romain, got a letter. It was from a prospector, and they claimed to have discovered something interesting in Eritrea. Here's Todd Romain speaking to the CBC. And our CEO at the time was very interested in exploring that, and he sent out two Nevson officials in uh, January. In 1998, and it wasn't until 2003 that we discovered this monster of a deposit called the Bishop Deposit. Describe the, this monster to me. What was there? Well, it was a it was a giant layer cake with high grades, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent grades of uh, you know gold, copper, and zinc. This giant ore body, um, which was again one of the highest grade uh, deposits in the world. Nevson Resources had stumbled upon an unheard of opportunity a massive, untouched deposit of gold, silver, copper, and zinc in the lowlands of Eritrea, a small, impoverished country on the east coast of Africa. But if Nevson wanted to break ground in all that untapped wealth, 
it would have to partner with the Eritrean government, a government that had become increasingly repressive since Eritrea had become an independent country, a government that has repeatedly been called one of the worst human rights abusers in the world. But that didn't stop Nevson. Right then, in the middle of a humanitarian crisis that would cause Eritreans to flee en masse from their homes, Nevson Resources and the Eritrean government struck a deal. The Bisha Mine in Eritrea, a partnership between Vancouver-based Nevson Resources and the Eritrean government's mining company known as Anamco, a joint venture that produces high-grade gold, silver, copper, and zinc. Well, the Bisha Mine is the only producing mine in Eritrea, and it plays a very important role in the Eritrean economy, and we're proud to say it adds significant tangible benefits to the people of Eritrea. And the mine they built together, the Bisha Mine, has become infamous around the world. That's because international organizations, as well as dozens and dozens of Eritreans, claim that the Bisha Mine was built by slaves. Canada is a mining country. Three quarters of the world's mining companies are headquartered right here in the Great White North. And Canadian mining expertise is renowned the world over. But over the years, some of those companies have been accused of human rights abuses abroad. But this, this is different. Eritrea isn't just any repressive regime. It's a totalitarian state, unlike almost anything else in the world. And what Nevson, a Vancouver-based mining company, is being accused of is a crime like no other. Slave labor was supposed to have been eradicated in the 19th century. And yet dozens and dozens of Eritreans claim that they were slaves building a mine for a Canadian company. And if it's true, all of us, every single Canadian citizen, was complicit. So what happens when a Canadian company working with one of the worst regimes in the world is accused of one of the most horrific crimes imaginable? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. 
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Aaron Burhani was a young man living in a young country. Eritrea, his homeland, had just achieved its independence from Ethiopia after a decades-long civil war. A lot of blood had been shed, but the time had come to create something new. Once we got our independence, there was lots of optimism. People were very, very optimistic to see the country is heading towards a right direction. As a young, ambitious person at that time, I didn't want my country to repeat the same mistakes as our African countries did. Aaron wanted to be part of this new journey. So in 1996, he co-founded a newspaper with two of his friends. It quickly became the biggest independent newspaper in the country. But two years later things were looking very different. 1998 was the year that changed everything. Eritrea got into a vicious border war with its neighbor, Ethiopia. A 100,000 people died in two years, and Eritrea's president refused to implement the democratic constitution. And Burhani and other journalists started to ask questions. 2000, 2001, we became very aggressive in the way we criticized the government. We pushed the government to implement the constitution. We, we become very critical. Even ministers in the government started to push back. Over a dozen of them started to question what looked like a power grab from the president, Isaiah F. Worky. The ministers wrote an open letter, and Aaron's newspaper published it. Immediately, the next day, I was summoned to the police station, and I was interrogated. I'm not going to stop writing about this, so I refused. And they came to my house to to intimidate me. He wrote an editorial about the issues. And for the government, that was the last straw. They were waiting outside of my house. One of them said, you know, if you write any anything against the government from now on, This is going to be the last byline, your last byline. Then came Black Tuesday, September 18th, 2001. The senior officials opposing the president were arrested, and seven independent newspapers, including Aaron's, were shut down. 
I thought I was dreaming. There was no warning given to us before that. Aaron went into hiding. A few days later, he called his wife to see if he could come home. But secret agents had come to his door asking for him. He went to his friend's home, another journalist. But he had already been arrested. All the journalists were arrested, except a few like me who were not at home at that time. But after that, I never never went back to my house. Aaron hid in Asmara, the Eritrean capital, for 103 days. And after receiving forged documents, graying his hair and growing out a beard, Aaron tried to make his escape. With another journalist and a smuggler, he left. The goal was the Sudanese border. The road was full of armed checkpoints, but for Aaron, escape was the only choice. From the beginning, I have very clear uh, decision in my mind. There is no way that I can be arrested. Because I know if I was arrested, I would be tortured to death to reveal my sources. And I didn't want to risk that at all. They reached the border on New Year's Eve. The Eritrean border has been and continues to be like the Berlin Wall. A shoot-to-kill policy for anyone trying to leave. The plan was to cross at midnight in the hopes that the soldiers would be distracted. They got out of their cars and started to walk across the border. But then they heard the clicks of rifles and soldiers yelling, stop. Once I hear that shouting, I never, never hesitated. I just started to run to the land of Sudan. And when the soldiers realized that we were not ready to stop, so they started firing. Once we hear that, once I hear that, I, you know, the adrenal started to flow. As he sprinted through the brush, Aaron could hear that he was no longer the one being followed. But the gunshots continued to ring out after the others. Aaron made it to the nearest Sudanese town. But he soon found out that the other two had been arrested. All the journalists who were arrested, they are still in jail. Five of them have already died in prison. And we don't even know about the rest. Black Tuesday was the turning point for Eritrea. It shifted from an authoritarian one-party state to something even worse. Today, journalists are rarely ever granted visas to Eritrea. Jeffrey York, the Globe and Mail's Africa bureau chief, had been trying for years with no luck. But late last year, he finally got the green light and was allowed in. Well, my first impressions are, are quite positive because, it, you know, Asmara, the capital, is a very beautiful city, um, high altitude, um, Italian colonial architecture, architecture from the 20s and 30s that uh, still well preserved. As a tourist, if you're being, if you're a tourist there, it, it's quite an interesting city to visit. Um, the people are very friendly. Um, lots of little street side cafes. Despite the beauty of its capital, Eritrea remains an international pariah. It's a one-party state where the legislature hasn't even met since 2002. There is still no independent media, and thousands of people are arbitrarily arrested and tortured for political reasons. Many Eritreans live in fear of the secret police who have a massive network of informants throughout the country. 
and thousands upon thousands of Eritreans flee every month. Here's Matthew Pennycook, an MP for the British Labour Party. An estimated 5,000 people leave Eritrea every month, and almost as many men, women and children left that country last year as fled Syria. It is a human exodus that is all the more staggering when you consider that this is a country of just six million people and one that is not presently at war. But what drives most of them to flee is a system that many people call modern-day slavery, the National Service. All Eritrean citizens are required to participate in the National Service, either with the military or working with a government agency, usually for less than $10 a month. It's supposed to last a year and a half, but for hundreds of thousands of Eritreans, it's never ended. Unfortunately, the president refuses to release anyone who goes to the National Service, so it becomes indefinite. Once you go there, that's it. There is no coming back. So you serve for indefinite period of time. And during this time, you work like a slave. You know, it's supposed to be a year and a half, but it actually in practice ends up being many years, sometimes 20 or 25 years of mandatory labor with very low wages. That's a huge source of grievance for people. You know, you talk to ordinary Eritreans and their families have been split up. I mean, they're, uh, you know, I was talking to one woman whose who's adult kids, you know, 20, 25-year-old kids have been uh, conscripted into the military, and she doesn't see them. She never sees them. They're, they've been away for years and years, and they're in dangerous places and low incomes and so on. The Eritrean government denies that national service is indefinite. There has never been indefinite usage of people in national service. The UN says completely contrary. Well, the UN report, if you ask people who live in Eritrea, including European Union ambassadors, will tell you that this is a distorted picture of the reality. Kubrum Dafla Hasebe, the former head of the Eritrean Tax Administration, who's now living in exile, acknowledges the truth. The young people see that they can't do any activity as long as that national service obligation exists. It's endless. There is no legal way of going out of the national service. Some people can go out earlier, but there is no way of knowing if you can go out of the national service and start your life. And Eritreans who have lived through it have also spoken up. Hannah Petros is the daughter of one of the officials who was imprisoned on Black Tuesday in 2001. After a failed escape attempt with her siblings, she was tossed into prison herself and then placed into the National Service Program. We were all sent to training camps. We were told we would be serving our country by being officially trained. For the next eight months, we were taken from one farm to another to work on fields for free. We got up before sunrise and worked up until noon on an empty stomach. Our guards would whistle three times. If by the third time we were not in the line, we would be punished, beaten with whatever they could get their hands on, or kicked. Weekends was supposed to be our resting days, but the guards used to do business deals. They would take us to a privately owned field to work and get paid for the hands they brought in. We were never given any beds. We slept on the ground in rain or cold. After four months, our division was changing location to Asip. 
At this point, I lost all hope. It has been two years, and they still weren't willing to send me home. Petros was eventually able to convince the leader of the division to allow her to return home. She made another escape attempt and succeeded, but both of her parents remain imprisoned. Other people have had it even worse. There are numerous reports of people being stuck in national service for 10 or 15 years. The Eritrean government justifies the national service program because of the threat of war with Ethiopia. While some are deployed as soldiers, many work on civilian projects, especially private companies owned by the ruling party and powerful officials in the Eritrean government and military. And the biggest project in recent Eritrean history has been the Bisha mine. Uh, I mean, Nefson is really, you know, the biggest private investor in Eritrea, and it's providing, it has provided more than a billion dollars in taxes and other benefits to the government over the past few years. So that means that Canadians really have a stake in Eritrea, and they're entitled to know what the conditions are in Eritrea. It's, it's very controversial for Canadian companies to be investing there. When Nevson and the Eritrean authorities agreed to develop the mine, a new company was formed. It was owned 60% by Nevson and 40% by the Eritrean government. And in order to build it, Nevson was forced to partner with Sagan, a construction firm owned by the Eritrean government. And that's where the trouble really started. Numerous Eritreans who say they worked on constructing the Bisha mine have said that they were essentially slaves in the National Service. Human Rights Watch and the United Nations have come to the same conclusion. Now, of course, Nevson denies all of it, actually. In their response in the Supreme Court of Canada case, they flatly say that all of it is lies, which seems quite extraordinary to me to say that there's not an ounce of truth in anything that these Eritrean refugees are saying about the conditions at the Bisha mine. But that's the stance that they're taking. I have to say it's contradicted by a huge amount of evidence. Bemnit Nagash says that he was forced into the National Service in 2006 when he was 20. He and his classmates were pulled out of school and tossed onto a bus destined for a military training camp. After years of being forced to build houses on the coast seven days a week, he says that he was transferred to Bisha in 2010. Nagash was told to take off his uniform, put on civilian clothes, and to never tell anyone that he was conscripted. One day, Nagash says he was allowed to spend time in a nearby town, but he was accused by his superiors of trying to escape, and he was tied up for five days and then sent to prison. According to testimony of Eritreans and others who worked at the site, the vast majority of Sagan workers were enslaved National Service members. They worked 12-hour days and weren't allowed to leave the site without permission. Eritreans have told Human Rights Watch that they were afraid for their lives, and they say they were dehumanized and neglected. Even disabled veterans were reconscripted and forced to work at the mine. And then there were deaths. In an affidavit, a Sagan manager, Abadi Gebermasekel Alameo, describes a Sagan conscript who died on the mine. Quote, one day he was building partitions in the residence for foreign workers, and he just collapsed. In his report, the doctor said it was heat stroke. I buried him myself. 
I took his body to his village and buried it. Nevson says they're proud of their successes at the Bisha mine. Well, I, th- I think a lot of people doubted our ability to, to operate in Eritrea, right? And I think as, as soon as he was able to come on board there, we were able to put a lot of our critics at bay, that we proved ourselves that we were able to operate in, in a far-flung jurisdiction like Eritrea and produce a world-class operation. If it wasn't for the support of the, the state, our partner, as well as all of our workers, it would, would not have been possible. And they've even spoken highly about the Eritrean government. Here's former CEO Cliff Davis. It's a very stable country. It, um, its government is a partner of ours. They actually own part of Bisha. They own 40%, of which they purchased 30%. And as a shareholder in that subsidiary company, they had to contribute their share of capital. So they have skin in the game. They're a state that absolutely is very supportive of mining. And uh, we have been a big, big benefit to the, to the people of Eritrea and, uh, and certainly the country. But their story on whether or not enslaved people helped build the Bisha mine has changed over time. Interestingly, Nevson did uh, concede a few years ago that there may have been abuses by its partner, the construction company that constructed the mine in its, in its early phase. That was the line that they took in 2013 when the first reports were coming out about this. And then later, Nevson seems to have changed its stance and now is flatly denying everything. In 2013, Nevson hired an outside human rights consultant to investigate the conditions at the mine. He found that the mine had strong controls in place to ensure that National Service conscripts weren't working on the site. But because he was hired on after the mine was built, he couldn't definitively say if enslaved people had worked to actually build the mine. But internal Nevson emails that have come out in a recent lawsuit prove that senior management was told numerous times that slaves could be working on the mine. In an email from 2009, former Nevson CEO Cliff Davis acknowledges knowing about conscript workers. Quote, We understand there are currently some national service people working for a key contractor working at site. We are in the process of determining whether the terms of employment would constitute forced labor. Nevson hired a U.S. social development expert named Kerry Connor to examine the mine the same year. In another email from 2009, Connor wrote that she had spoken to the mine's manager who, quote, recognizes its forced labor. She wrote a report saying that the project is at risk for contravention of the prohibition on the use of forced labor. Today, there are also other human rights concerns with the mine. When Jeffrey York visited Eritrea last year, he wasn't able to go to the Bisha mine. But he was able to go to the port city where Nevson ships out what they mine. You know, obviously it's a, it's a, a mine which depends entirely on exports. So they have to get their mineral products from the Bisha mine to the Red Sea, which is where they're then put into, you know, freighter ships and exported. So to do that, they have to go on this very dangerous mountain road. There were trucks every minute or two on this road. These are massive trucks going on a, an incredibly dangerous road that, that is basically hairpin turns descending very rapidly down to sea level. The trucks do you know, share the road with, with children and, and, and local shepherds and so on. And when I researched it, I was told that there'd been a number of terrible accidents. And the human rights consultant 
for Nevson confirmed to me that there's been a lot of accidents on that road, a number of fatalities and injuries. But Nevson is able to wash its hands of this by saying, well, it's not our direct employees. We're doing, we're doing this in partnership with the government, and it's a state-run trucking company that does it. What was interesting is when I asked them, do you monitor the fatalities, the accidents, the dangers to the children, how much compensation is paid to the family or, or to the victim if there's an injury or a death? I asked them all these questions, and they would not answer. Those companies, they have to be aware of that. But I'm sure they do, but they don't seem to care. Because no one is going to hold them accountable. They know they don't get paid. They know they work 16 hours a day. And they know they are like slaves. They don't have rights, that basic rights. So if they know this, so they have to understand that they are breaking one of the international law. They are destroying the life of those people indirectly. Whether they say we didn't know or not, it doesn't matter. Aaron Burhani has been living in Canada for two decades now. And he's disappointed that his adopted home isn't doing more to stop companies that work with the Eritrean government. The Canadian government is supposed to do one thing, at least, to hold Nepson resources accountable. But I don't see that. I am not able to see anything that comes from the Canadian government. Emails from the Department of Foreign Affairs show that Canadian officials raised concerns about possible slave labor to Nepson executives. But officials appeared to be less curious about if the accusations were true than about reputational damage to Canadian companies. When the Canadian ambassador to Ethiopia tried to find out more about the accusations from her colleagues, she appears to have gotten no response. And whether or not Bisho was built using slave labor is an important question to all Canadians. Because Nevson is traded on the TSX, much of its stock is owned by the Canada Pension Plan. That means all of us may have benefited financially from the use of slaves in Eritrea. There are people trying to hold Nevson accountable for these accusations. Three Eritreans who claim to have been slaves on the Bisha mine are currently suing the company for violating their human rights. Nevson is denying all of the accusations. But Burhani doesn't buy it. You know how much those individuals are risking for filing this lawsuit, their family members can be killed, their family members can be tortured. They are taking a huge risk. They have good reason to be afraid. The Eritrean government's able to exert an immense amount of power on Eritreans, even if they live abroad. Eritreans in the diaspora are regularly blackmailed into giving 2% of their income to the country, a practice that has gotten them into hot water in Canada. Eritreans in Canada say they're being intimidated into donating money to the repressive African regime. The UN has condemned it for using threats to extract what it calls a diaspora tax. Canada told the Eritrean consul last year to stop soliciting and collecting or he would lose his diplomatic status. But the practice goes on. And as we hear from world affairs correspondent Rick McInnes... And many Eritreans abroad are terrified of the secret police. They don't feel, most of them, they don't feel that freedom. 
to speak or express themselves freely out of that fear because there are spies. Uh, there are people who watch the activities of individuals. There are people who report every movement, every uh, activity you do. Despite all of this, Nevson maintains that Human Rights Watch, the United Nations, numerous news agencies, and the dozens of Eritreans that have accused it of using forced labor are all simply wrong. The case against Nevson has made it to the Supreme Court of Canada. Nevson and the Mining Association of Canada argue that because the subsidiary running Bisha is registered in Eritrea, they should have to sue it in that country. Nevson is, is arguing that this should be judged by Eritrean courts. And, you know, that is, to be fair, quite ridiculous because there's just no chance that an Eritrean court would rule against the Eritrean government on a major issue like this. Nevson lawyers, they are asking this process to be done in Eritrea. <laughs> that was really, really funny. You know, <laughs> in Eritrea, there is no independent court the court is a joke. And to ask the Canadian court to pass that uh, decision to be made in Eritrea, that, that is really, really a joke. If the Eritreans win, it could set a precedent to allow Canadian mining companies to be sued at home for alleged human rights abuses by their subsidiaries. And because most of the world's mining companies are headquartered here, it could change the whole industry. Even in Eritrea, things may be on the verge of change. Last year, Ethiopia's new prime minister signed a peace deal with Eritrea. A few weeks ago, Ethiopia and Eritrea were bitter enemies as they had been for the past two decades. Now they are behaving as if they are the best of friends. Eritrean President Isaias Afuwerki arrived in Addis Ababa on Saturday to dancing and loud cheers. It's a historic occasion that has some Eritreans hoping that the government will finally end indefinite national service. But so far, there's been no change. And as for Nevson, they just extended the mine's operations. The Bisha mine is planned to close down in 2022. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Jeffrey York at the Globe and Mail, Matthew McLaren, formerly of Canadian Business Magazine, Scott Anderson at the CBC's Fifth Estate, Alison Martell and Edmund Blair at Reuters, and many, many others. Commons will be going on a hiatus for the next month so that we can put together a brand new season for you to enjoy. We're going to stick to the same format, but we'll be bringing you a new batch of stories on a slightly different topic, and I hope you'll tune in. Now, that doesn't mean we're done with the whole corruption thing, though. We're hoping to revisit the subject a bit later this year. So if you do have story ideas, please send them our way. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CanadaLandCommons. That's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Thank you.
Thank you.